0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A few years ago, Daniel Lieberman had a genius idea. He would use a treadmill to reveal secrets about the human body, or at least it seemed like a genius idea, until it fell apart.
1: So we schlepped this treadmill all the way up these horrible roads and found the closest place we could plug it in, and it was a total failure.
0: Lieberman, who is a professor of biological sciences at Harvard, has spent years researching questions about our bodies and exercise. Is sitting bad for us? Is standing really better, like at a standing desk? Are some sorts of exercise superior to others? Is it normal to be lazy? He has answered these questions in part by understanding how humans move in societies that are more like societies that we all used to live in, which made him think, Bringing a treadmill to a remote section of Kenya, that was the ticket.
1: People who, from the same group, uh, live, uh, there are some who live out in the rural area. They're, they're subsistence farmers. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity. They don't have shoes. And then just 50 kilometers away, uh, there's the modern city of Eldoret, where we can study the people from the same population who are living sort of urban lives. So we're studying that sort of transition. And we wanted to do an experiment on carrying on how women in these in Kenya carry a lot of stuff they carry everything women are the are the carriers basically and they carry water they carry firewood and and there's some old studies showing that women could carry huge weights on their heads without any extra cost and we wanted to study that and so the easiest way to do that is on a treadmill
0: except that it isn't you actually don't walk normally on a treadmill it's an acquired skill and the women who had no trouble walking places while carrying heavy stuff on their heads They had no idea how to do that on a treadmill, but they did find the contraption interesting.
1: And people thought it was funny. They were laughing. They enjoyed it. It was a game, right? But they weren't walking normally, right? And so that that ruined our experiment. And, you know, I was kind of a little irritated because I'd spent all this money and time and I, you know, hired this guy to bring it all the way up there and, you know, found the closest place to plug it in. And, you know, and I realized it fit the book I was trying to finish, which is that, you know, Treadmills are really weird things, and and we take it for granted in places like, you know, the United States. But uh, most of the world thinks a treadmill is a pretty strange, bizarre device, and why would anybody do it? You know, walk on a treadmill.
0: And if you've ever balked at hitting the gym or dislodging yourself from that comfy chair, you're probably nodding and saying, good question. Why would anybody want to walk on a treadmill? And indeed, it's an excellent question, and one that Daniel Lieberman tackles in the book exercised, why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding. Lieberman says, part of the reason that we are so worried about exercise, like how much of it to do, what to do, what its effect is going to be on us, part of the reason we're so worried is exercise is so darn new. Physical activity, obviously, is not new. People have always hunted for food and then later they began tilling fields, and that can be a ton of work. But the notion that you would move more than you absolutely have to to get dinner on the table, that you might voluntarily run a 5K or swim laps for fun, that sounds pretty nuts. Almost as crazy as, I don't know, walking on a treadmill.
1: You know, I went for a run this morning for the sole purpose of going for a run. But people didn't used to do that, right? They went running when they needed to or had to or or it was a part of a game, right? Um. So exercise as we see it today is a very modern idea. So yeah, spending hard-earned money to, you know, get on a treadmill or lift weights whose sole purpose is to be lifted or, you know, I could go on, right? That would surprise our ancestors.
0: And I mean, you you come to this notion that people are exercised, like as in agitated about the idea of exercise, whether it's like should they do it, should they not, should they run Five miles should they run? Two miles should they run? Is it bad for their knee? Like they're very, there's a lot of anxiety now around this notion of exercise.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's true about a lot of aspects of health. You know, we've we've medicalized and commercialized and industrialized and commodified. We've Everything aspect of health, and in the way in which health information is provided to us, we get the little these little bits, right? So one day you read in the in the paper that you know barefoot running is good for you. The next day you read it, it's bad for you. And then one day you read that you should do high intensity interval training. It's like all you need. And the next day you read that no 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 you should do long slow exercise. And one day you read that you should use weights, and the next day you read that no 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 you should only use your body weight. And and people don't know what how to make sense of this. They get whiplash, and and. And we get all these contradictory kind of bad little bits of information. And then on top of that, there's a kind of virtue signaling and blaming and shaming about physical activity. Because let's face it, most people don't like to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I forced myself to exercise, but like this morning, I didn't want to go for a run. I, I have ways of coercing myself, but I, you know, I whinged about it for about half an hour before I finally got out the door. And, you know, and the, I didn't enjoy the first mile or so, and but I eventually eased into it and enjoyed my run. But... But we're made to feel bad about it. So there, we're exercised about our instincts. You know, example I have given it gives, you know, you're in an airport or a mall or, a you know, subway station or something like that, right, where there's a stairway next to an escalator. We've all been in one mm-hmm. of those situations, right? And there's that little voice in your head which says, take the escalator, right? Even, now, even though there was no escalators in the Stone Age, right, we all have this, this instinct to to save energy and to take the escalator and then but then we made to feel bad that we had that instinct that's
0: why later on we do the Stairmaster
1: exactly (laughs) exactly so you know I, I think we need to be more compassionate towards each other right there's nothing wrong with that instinct just like you know, if you put a piece of chocolate cake in front of me and an apple, of course I'm going to want the chocolate cake. Right. And it's not that I'm a sybarite epicurean, you know, you know, fat loving, you know, whatever. It's it's that chocolate cake is just more tasty than an apple. And, and of course I want it. And then it's a normal instinct. And and I shouldn't feel bad about it. We need to help each other use that so sort of slow, rational part of our brains to to make decisions that are our own best self-interest without the shaming and the blaming and the virtue signaling.
0: Um, let's stay on this uh, thing for a minute of like, is it normal to be lazy? Because I think people think of like, in the past, people were much more active. Now we're we're sort of modern day lazy people. And you and you talk about how um, you were like the last kid to get picked in gym class. And I remember in a very similar vein, being on a sports team in high school, and the warm up, the warm up was running two or three miles. And I truly felt like, I was clinging to life at the end of the warm-up. And, and you know, I, I mean, it was just way too much for me. Are we abnormal? Are we normal?
1: Well, look, we've created all these myths about exercise and physical activity, that our ancestors were these sort of supernatural athletes who could just, you know, naturally get out of bed and, you know, run a hundred miles and lift, you know, huge weights and, and you know, or look like Charles Atlas or whatever. and And that, you know, civilization has contaminated us, right? You know, we're all the sort of etiolated versions of, you know, normal human beings and wimps and, you know, unable to do that. But the fact of the matter is that um, we're all pretty normal and that hunter-gatherers and, you know, people who, you when know, humans were hunter-gatherers until recently everywhere on the planet until about 600 generations ago. It's not that they you know, naturally want to go out and do all kinds of physical activity. It's just that they have to, but they don't have to do huge amounts. So, you know, the typical hunter-gatherer in Tanzania, for example, it's a population that we've studied a lot uh, called the Hadza. Uh, you know, people have put GPS monitors on them and heart rate monitors and all kinds of monitors on these folks. And we know that they engage in what's called moderate to vigorous physical activity. That's, that's when you get your, your heart rate up about above 50% or more. So like a brisk walk or, or more. Okay. They spend about two and a quarter hours a day doing moderate to vigorous physical activity. So they're not, they're not doing crazy amounts of, of hard work. They're working a lot harder than we are, for, for the most part.
0: I assume they're not doing this, though, like, to exercise. I assume they're doing this to, like, catch some food or exactly, something.
1: Exactly, exactly. Okay. They're, they're doing that every day. They go out and they walk, you know, between 9 and, you know, 15 kilometers a day to get to find food and dig it up and bring it home. And, and then they do chores in, in camp and take care of their kids and do all the sorts of things that we do, except without the aid of machines. And... And so they're working moderately hard, but the other important thing is that they don't have an excess of energy available to them. There's no 7-Eleven or Whole Foods or whatever around the corner they can go to and, and just sort of, you know, get infinite calories, right? So when you're in a situation where you have constrained energy, right, you don't have as much energy as you'd like, and you have to spend energy in order to get food, which is energy, right? It doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's actually ab- it's aberrant. It's a bad idea to to spend unnecessary energy that's not going to benefit you, right? Because it becomes a trade off. Think about you know, anything that's limited is it becomes a trade off. Think about time, right? The time that you're spending listening to me right now is gone. You're never going to get it back. So you you can spend a-, a second listening to me, or you can spend a second doing something else, right? And and energy is the same way. In- in- for most people, until recently, it's. When you spend energy on physical activity, you're not spending it on, say, taking care of your body or reproduction or storing energy, and so it becomes maladaptive to waste it. And so, so that's why hunter gatherers, you know, they're they're active, but they're not crazy active, and they don't engage in usually rarely, you know, in in, an extra unnecessary discretionary activity unless it has some benefit. And the benefit could be that it's socially rewarding. So, one of the things that that every group in the world does is dance. Right? Dancing is. Dancing is fun or, or every population on the planet, you know, people play. Right? Play is important. You learn skills and, and reinforces social hierarchies and all kinds of other good things happen, right, with play. So, so we do things other than hunt and gather and forage and, you know, make food. But, but generally it's because we value them and there's some benefit to them. Like the, the Tarahumara, for example, the famous runners in Mexico. Uh, you know, when they do their famous runs, they do it because it's a form of prayer. It's spiritual for them. They value it. They think it's it has some it has some important social value for them.
0: You have um, a great story of I think I'm going to meet one of those runners in Mexico. He's in his 70s. He'd been like really great in a lot of races. And um, you ask him like, OK, you're a really great runner. How did you train?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was that was the start of the book actually, because I I, w- I was just finishing up my previous book, the the story of the human body. I was kind of putting the final touches on it, and I was on sabbatical, and I went to to Mexico to get some data on on how these uh, the Tarahumara these or, or they call themselves the Raramuri, um, how they run, because they had gotten a lot of press, a lot of attention. And I was, you know, going around asking everybody about their running, being a good anthropologist. I had my set of questions, and I was asking people about training. First of all, I discovered that most of them don't run that much. Only a small group of them run. Um, but when I asked them about training, nobody ever seemed to understand me. I couldn't get – this was through an interpreter, you know, you know, them to understand that, you know, they would explain, oh, you know, this gringo is asking you questions. You know, every, every, every morning he goes for a five-mile run. So when I've asked this guy, this, this lovely elderly gentleman who was uh, kind of reticent at first – when the interpreter, you know, I, I, once again, I tried my question about training. He just like looked at me and he said in Spanish, you know, why would anybody run if they didn't have to? And it was like one of those, you know, occasionally there are these moments in life. And it really was one of those Eureka kind of aha moments. Like, yeah, exercise is (laughs) abnormal. I mean, what I do is actually kind of weird and he's the normal one and I'm the strange one.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your body and how calories are used up, because obviously we focus so much on the issue of like weight and being in shape and all these things. And, you know, I'll just use myself as an example. I walk outside maybe like two, three miles a day and maybe on average. But you say that that amount of walking, which I consider like a pretty good day of walking, pales in comparison to the amount of calories that I burn just by sitting in a chair, lying in a bed at night. Um, Talk a little bit about how our calories are burned, even if we think like, wow, I went on like a two-mile run or a three-mile walk or whatever.
1: Yeah, this this surprises people. So. You know, calorie is the basic unit of energy that we often use, um, you know, and, and one calorie is the energy to, to, to raise a gram of water by a degree Celsius. Right? And a typical sort of adult American human being spends about 1600 calories a day just taking care of his or her body. You know, that's just, it's just like all the things that are going on in your body, paying for your brain, and you're growing your fingernails and breathing and replacing the cells in your skin that, you know, die and your immune system and all of that sort of stuff. That's just ticking along in the in the background without you ever really noticing it. You're spending about sixteen hundred calories a day just doing that. And then you spend some extra calories digesting your food. You spend extra calories if you're pregnant or, or nursing, you're spending extra calories on that. And then of course you spend calories on on physical activity. And we don't spend that much on physical activity. To compare that, if I if you go off walking for a mile, a typical person spends only about fifty calories a mile. Wow. If you ran that mile, you spend about a hundred calories for that mile. Of course it varies with your weight and to some extent it varies with your speed. But you know, those are just kind of Rough averages, so if you say you're trying to lose weight and you want to if you want to go into what we call negative energy balance that 's what happens when you're trying to lose weight you're spending more calories than you're taking in let's say you want to go into three hundred calories of negative energy balance a day that means you have to walk six miles a day which is a lot which you know you can do, but it's it's a right. fair amount you know mm-hmm. most people don 't have that much time or you can run three miles um a day, which is you know a more efficient way of doing it, but even then if you then like you're hungry afterwards, you're gonna get most of that back from the from the donut that you might eat or or whatever you know you happen to have, because there's so much calorie in food. So so when you want to lose weight, by far the most effective way to lose weight is to diet. You know, if you don't have as many you know, pieces of bacon or you know, whatever, you're cut back on sugar, etc., that's a much more efficient way to change your calorie balance than by than through physical activity. And so that's turned into a bit of a controversy because there's some people who say, well, you can't lose weight by exercising. I think that's not true either. It's just that you can't lose weight rapidly and quickly and in big amounts by exercising. But, and here's the important but, mm-hmm. the evidence shows that that if you're trying to prevent weight gain or weight regain, which is often the problem after a diet, people lose weight and then it comes back again, right? We all know that phenomenon. That physical activity, exercise, really does help with that because it kind of sort of re your metabolism a little bit.
0: Let me um, put an asterisk on here to the issue of, like, how many calories you burn and what diets do because you, you write about this... Um, this study uh, that happened during World War II um, that studied starving people, partially because, of course, a lot of people were starving at that time and there was this interest in figuring out, like, what does it do to their bodies. What really surprised me is you know how you were talking before about, like, it's about 1,600 calories a day if you don't really do anything, but just to maintain, you know, your brain, like, keep your liver going, all the stuff that you kind of need to do. Um, with the people who were starving, it sounded like when they got less food, they were able to lower that amount that it took them every day um, to maintain their
1: bodies. Yeah, yeah, this is an amazing experiment which could never be done again for good reason. So this is called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment it was done as World War II was was moving along. The American government realized that um, you know there was going to be a huge starvation problem in Europe. And we didn't really understand the biology of starvation and, and, you know, lack of food. And so a very famous physiologist named Ansel Keys in Minnesota uh, started this experiment. He got conscientious objectors. These are, I think, mostly Quakers. And they agreed to, essentially, to starve themselves for science. And that's actually how they advertise it, you know. Mm-hmm. So after a kind of initial diet, they they went on a, a really dramatic weight loss. You know, they were basically cut their calories pretty much down to maintenance level, you know, that 1,600 a day. But he still made them be physically active because, of course, starving people can't just stop, you know, in most circumstances, just stop. They can't just sit around. They have to try to get food, right? So he made them stay physically active, and they measured everything about these folks. And it was really high-quality science. Um, And what they found was that, of course, they lost a lot of weight, mostly fat, and they became very, very inert. So whenever they didn't have to do anything, they wouldn't do anything. But they also turned down their metabolism, right? Just like with your household budget, there are some things that you you have to spend money on, right? you got to pay the rent. But there are some things that maybe you can skimp on, like you can turn the heat down lower in the winter, Mm -hmm. you know? cope with a lower temperature and spend less on entertainment and spend less on food and whatever. So there's yes. some things that are reducible versus some things that are non-reducible. And, and what the body does is it, you know, when you're on that kind of starvation diet, it turns down everything it can, right, to the lowest level possible. So their, their metabolic rates actually decreased substantially during that period. And what it, it tells us is that metabolic rates are—they're not set; they're variable. And what we do affects our metabolic rates, and um, and physical activity is just one of the things that affects—you know—how much energy that we spend and how much energy we spend on our basal metabolic rate.
0: So does that make you uh, think that if people go on extreme diets, that they may reduce that—that that sort of basic? Amount of calories that they need, so that when they go back to eating their normal amount of food, it it, in fact it's like they may gain weight easily.
1: That's exactly what happens. Exactly. So there's a very famous study based on the. Do you remember the TV show The Biggest Loser?
0: I do remember. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So they had these. These are people who you know lost extraordinary amounts Mm -hmm. of weight, and um, because it was public, they were able to study these folks. And it turns out that almost all, if uh, I think all but one, if I recall from the study. Uh, Almost all of them regained the weight, um, tragically, because um, their metabolic rates were shunted down, right? And the hypothalamus, which is this part of your brain which regulates your metabolic rate, it gets gets modified by this extreme weight loss and goes into a kind of starvation mode. So some of these folks have metabolic rates for like children, but they're full-sized adults. And of course, it's so hard to eat that little right it's impossible right so so the weight comes roaring back and but these are people with disordered metabolisms Mm -hmm. Um, there's something wrong we don't still understand what it is that's that's happening The, the good news is that that exercise is not the same thing right so if you go for a run or a jog or do something normal Of course, you'll spend some extra energy. And it turns out that afterwards, you also spend a little extra energy. It's called the afterburn. And so, you know, after a run or a workout, your your metabolism is actually elevated a little bit. um, And then it goes down after a few hours. Sometimes it can take a day or so to go down. And that extra energy is, most of it's, it's like your body responding to that physical activity. It it kind of, it's not, it doesn't cause you to lose a lot of weight. This is not an effective weight loss strategy. But it does tell you about all the things that are getting turned on by physical activity.
0: Hmm. Let's pause for a second here. I'm talking to Daniel Lieberman. He's a professor of biological sciences and human evolutionary biology at Harvard University and the author of the book, Exercised. We're going to talk more on the other side about diets, how much sitting is okay for you to do, and the medical effects of exercise on the body. If you want to grab this whole conversation or share it, we are on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. We're going to be right back. Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Daniel Lieberman about exercise and laziness and all sorts of questions that intersect with those topics, like should we run to lose weight? Is running maybe not so great for us? Is sitting imperiling our health? Are standing desks overhyped? Daniel is the author of the book Exercised. He's a professor of biological sciences at Harvard University. And I want to pick up on that uh, sitting question that I had there. A lot of people, I'm one of those people, Uh, spend a lot of time sitting during the day. Um, In my case, it's because my job depends on things like reading your book, uh, which is obviously hard to do while you're kind of running around town. So if somebody is sitting in meetings or writing or coding or reading or whatever, uh, do you worry about the fact that as Americans, we are all just sitting like way too much?
1: Well that's that's a bit of a loaded question so let's unpack okay. that a bit. So many of us have heard this expression, you know, sitting is the new smoking, right? That somehow we're all sitting incredibly um, huge amounts etc. But but let's go back to the Hadza, right? That population in Tanzania that um, our hunter gatherers so some former students of mine, Dave Reichlin and Herman Ponzer again, they put monitors on Hadza and found out they sit about 10 hours a day, which is not far off from what, what you and I do. It's actually about the same amount, right? So there's nothing abnormal about sitting. It's it's normal when you're not being physically active, and we already discussed that the Hadza aren't active all day long, right? They, they, so it sounds
0: like they are looking for opportunities to sit. Right? Of course. If you're sitting 10 hours a day, you're like, where can I sit? Can I sit down now?
1: Yeah, they're not rushing out right. and buying standing desks, okay. right? Okay. You know, okay. like, you right. know, when you're not working, you sit, right? My, my, okay. my dog okay. does the same thing. She sits all day long, right? Right? Okay. Uh, most animals sit. Cows sit. I mean, there are very few animals that don't sit. Okay. Uh, chickens sit. Um, anyway, um, the, the point is that you know I think this is one of the reasons that people are exercised about exercise. Right? We we, we kind of scare them. Like sitting is then you smoking and everybody rushes out and buy standing desks, etc. And you know a standing desk is fine. There's nothing wrong with a standing desk. In fact, they're good. But they're not exercise, right? And and it's not sitting per se that's bad. The problem is that if you let's say you have a job and you sit all day at your job and then you go home and then you sit all evening long mm-hmm. and you sit in your car to get to work and you sit in your car to get home from work and if sitting is all you do both work and non-work then you're in trouble, right? Because it means you're not doing physical activity. And so studies show two important things. First is that it's leisure time sitting which is most strongly associated with negative health outcomes. So people who who sit a lot at work but they're physically active in leisure time, they have excellent health outcomes. They're not paying a price for that sitting. And then secondly there are more healthy ways to sit. And it turns out that sitting actively i.e. getting up every once in a while. People who sit the same amount of time but get up every 10, 15 minutes do much better than people who sit the same total amount of time but sit inertly for very, very long periods of time. And that's because when if you get up every once in a while, and I can tell you in hunter-gatherer camps, people are getting up all the time to run after babies and put something on the fire and do this and do that, etc. That, you know, getting up every once in a while or fidgeting turns on your muscles, you know, you're not spending a lot of energy, but you're, you're turning on those metabolism and you're using, you're using the fats in your bloodstream and using the sugar in your bloodstream and all that's good. And it prevents some of the negative inflammatory consequences of sitting a lot. So let's not say that sitting is the new smoking. Instead, let's say, make sure you still also get some physical activity and sit more actively. I mean, there's sort of, I think, I think we can give people a little bit more nuanced information without scaring them. And give them the information that they need to kind of improve the way that we live in the modern world. Because I also have a job that requires me to sit a lot. So I try to sit a bit more actively, but I'm not scared of my chair.
0: Um, You said that you do some running. Um, Tell me a little bit about running, because I think people also, if they're scared of sitting, some people are also scared of running because they're like, they worry that it's very hard on your body. And so... Um, I wonder sometimes as an in-between if things like treadmills and, you know, like uh, pelotons and things like that have found this in-between because people are worried running has this downside, but but they know inactivity has downside, so they're spending money on something else in between. Exactly.
1: Yeah, they're exercised about what kind of exercise to do. Right, exactly. Uh, Well, look, it is true that running is an important form of physical activity. It's the most fundamental, basic form of vigorous physical activity, right? And it's good to have some vigorous physical activity. But it is also true that runners also get injured sometimes. And, you know, they, people didn't just make this stuff up. Of course, I think we've exaggerated the kinds of running injuries that people get. If You know, running as injurious, as some people would think you know, then runners would be dropping like flies and there would be very few of us out there, right? So it's not that bad, right? People tend to get injured when they're running, when they're starting off, right? If they're not really fit and they don't have the strength. And and then they also tend to get injured if they, you know, they start training for marathons and, you know, doing crazy stuff and, you know, really upping their speed or distance. Um, But most people who just do kind of normal levels of running, they're doing fine. But we have a lot of myths about running. And one of them is that it's like a wear and tear thing on your body, like the shock absorbers on your car that you can wear them out, right? And that we, people are afraid that they'll wear out their knees by running. And although it's true that knee injuries are, are the most common form of running injury, arthritis, which is the wear, you know, wearing away your your cartilage in your knee is not caused by running. And there are many, many, many studies which show that. Instead, I think, and I think there's a, a fair number of studies which which back this up, which is that a reason a lot of people are getting injured when they're running and getting knee injuries is that they're not running very well. I think running is a skill, and we don't teach people the skill of running. They overstride, they, they throw their foot way out in front of them, and that, that has a lot of negative effects on how you run. You know, They don't necessarily have the strength in their muscles that cross the joint that reduce the forces. There's ways to run better that can kind of mitigate or prevent injury and ways to train them more properly. And I think if, we, if people did that, then they, I think they would be a little, we'd be a little less scared of running. But we don't teach people to run anymore. We just give them a pair of shoes and say, go for it. And and the end result is I think people are more prone to getting injured.
0: Were you were you always a runner and did the research that you've done over time, did it change what you do for exercise?
1: Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, I was sort of always a runner. I actually started running when I was a kid because my mother started running when I was very young. She was a professor at the University of Connecticut, and they had a, a fancy gym that they built, and they wouldn't let women use it, and that didn't sit well with her. She's a wonderful heroic feisty person and so she started running to liberate the gym and she hated it and she wasn't very good at it and i remember as a kid you know mom was off running and i remember her complaining about it this was in 1969 by the way so before the running boom and before running shoes were available and all that kind of stuff and you know just as she managed to liberate the gym and uh, she also became a lifelong runner and Hmm. she's still very physically active she's in her mid-80s and so I kind of kind of grew up thinking that was sort of normal, but I, I was never a serious runner. I would just jog a little bit. I kind of figured out, I was a very hyperactive kid, and I kind of figured out that running kind of helped calm me down. So in high school, I would run a few times a week, you know, nothing very far. And in college, I kept it up. So I was always sort of moderately physically active, but I was never a serious runner. And it wasn't until I started to study the evolution of running and got interested in this idea that humans evolved to run. So a colleague of mine, Dennis Bramble, and I published a paper in Nature in 2004 entitled Born to Run that made that argument and writing that paper kind of just supercharged me. So it was really the studying running and studying the evolution of human physical activity has really helped me become a better athlete. And uh, I mean, I never thought I could do this kind of stuff when I was younger. I was always, as you said before, I was the kid picked last and I was ashamed mm-hmm. of my body. And I once hid in a closet to avoid going to gym. You know, I, nobody would have <laughs> predicted that I, I, I wouldn't have predicted that I would be studying physical activity and exercise and running and all that kind of stuff.
0: There you go. Maybe I have a future in running marathons. Um, (laughs) uh, There's this paradox that you write about um, uh, that um, as we, in general, in general, in the Western world, like turn away from a more active life, um, eat more kind of refined food, um, we are also generally living longer than we have in the past. How do you sort of reconcile that Yes, there's more obesity. Yeah, okay. You know, we're not moving around as much, but what? I mean, we live pretty long.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why people are, you know, suspicious of of some of some, some of the things they hear about exercise. You know, we hear it's a magic bullet. You know, that'll solve all problems, and yet, you know we can point to famous public figures who, you know, don't exercise and live into their seventies and eighties and who knows and beyond. And, right. and and you know, so clearly you don't need to exercise in order to live long. But here's the data, right? The data show that, yes, today in the modern world, you can live a long and reasonably healthy life without exercising. But you increase your vulnerability to a wide range of diseases. And in mm-hmm. the absence of medicine, you probably wouldn't be able to make it, right? So you know, people who are physically active have much lower rates of heart disease, vastly lower rates of heart disease. They have lower rates of Alzheimer's. Actually, it's the only really effective way of preventing Alzheimer's is being, hmm. is being physically active. They have lower rates of, of many forms of cancer. You know, just basic levels of physical activity can lower women's rates of breast cancer by 30 to 40 percent, according to many studies. That's That's enormous. Benefit. The list is long. I could go on and on and on. I can cite a lot of diseases. Depression is another mental health issue that's strongly affected by physical activity. So we can we can get by. But what happens is that we, as we're living longer because of better sanitation and better medicine, even while being less physically active, we're spending more of those years in what's called a state of morbidity. Morbidity means illness, right? So we're living longer, but we're spending more years with... You know diabetes and metabolic syndrome and, and heart disease and various forms of dementia and arthritis and all these sort of chronic diseases that we have to take all kinds of medications for and we can we can cope. Physical activity reduces that enormously, and so not only does it extend people's lives, but it also extends or compresses morbidity. It prevents us from having those chronic illnesses that reduce the quality of life, and also, by the way, spend. Expend trillions of dollars in our medical system.
0: Um, to pick up on two afflictions you mentioned there, Alzheimer's and cancer, um, how do we know that exercising reduces your risk of having Alzheimer's and cancer?
1: Well, we know for two reasons. So one is that we have epidemiological studies. We have large, large, large studies. There are now many studies on both diseases where they're you know, prospective studies where they've followed long, large groups of people over long periods of time and correct for for sex and socioeconomic status and smoking and a variety of other factors that could influence these diseases. And, and we can show that, that people who are physically active have much, much, much lower rates of Alzheimer's and lower rates of many forms of cancer. Not all forms of cancer, but but many forms of cancer. So that's one reason. So there's just pure epidemiological data that just tells us what the relationship between physical activity is and some health outcomes. But the other reason is that we understand some of the mechanisms by which physical activity helps prevent some of these diseases. So in the case of Alzheimer's, physical activity not only increases blood flow but also increases the production of neurotrophic factors. There's one called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor, which which is um uh, it's called by some people miracle grow for the brain, but it's a molecule that actually helps maintain the function of the neocortex, the part of the brain that gets damaged by Alzheimer's. It's um uh, you know there are all kinds of other proteins and whatever that are released by physical activity that are are neuroprotective, decrease levels of inflammation. Alzheimer's is an inflammatory disease of the brain and and physical activity decreases inflammation. So we understand not only epidemiologically, but we also have mechanistic explanations for that. And the same is true of cancer. Um, It's a little bit more complicated because there are many different kinds of cancers and cancers have all kinds of different pathways but physical activity lowers levels of sugar in the bloodstream and most cancerous cells rely on sugar for their fuel. Physical activity decreases inflammation. And again, inflammation is a major cause of cancer. Physical activity upregulates aspects of our immune system which help fight cancers naturally. There was a paper that just came out which showing that physical activity decreases your risk of dying or getting sick from COVID substantially. There was a huge study in California uh, from the Kaiser Permanente system, where the entire Kaiser system, they, they actually record every patient's physical activity levels. And they showed that in the Kaiser system, people who, are, who got more than 150 minutes of physical activity a week had 2.5 fold lower rates of dying from COVID, 1.7 times lower rates of getting hospitalized from COVID <laughs> after correcting for obesity and smoking and age and sex and all the other those other factors i mean that's huge and that's because it's arming the immune system and the immune system is our secret weapon or not so secret weapon against cancer
0: you're listening to innovation hub i'm Kara miller talking to daniel lieberman he's the author of exercised why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding we're going to take a brief break here we will come right back to talk about how the pandemic has changed us physically We're going to have lots more about the studies that we've cited on our website. That's innovationhub.org. Talk to you in a minute. Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Daniel Lieberman about exercise and why it's not actually all that natural for people to do, but why you might want to do it anyway. He's a professor of biological sciences at Harvard University and author of the appropriately titled book, Exercised. Um, We've only got a few minutes left, but I want to ask you uh, about the effects of the pandemic. For more than a year, of course, many people's normal routines were totally upended. You could even see that reflected um, in terms of exercise in the stock market. So, for example, the stock of a company like Peloton, which makes exercise bikes, went from about $30 a share pre-pandemic to something like $160 a share in early 2021. So when you think about how people are exercising, what people are spending money on, and I mean, that could include yoga pants, for example, do you feel like America has found a good approach to exercising so yes okay we're sitting a lot but we're balancing it with something
1: well look, like, like by so many aspects of the pandemic i think it's revealed the inequities and inequalities mm. in our society right and if you look at the data that at least the data i've seen just as with so many other things some people have benefited from this pandemic and they've done really well and they've been able to go out and buy pelotons and and you know, you know peloton's expensive by the way yes. and um and they've been able to, you know, outfit their gyms and their houses and stuff like that. And they've they've coped pretty well. And they live in, in neighborhoods where they can go out and walk and run and, you know, be outside. But there's a whole other, much larger group of Americans who haven't had those opportunities. And they've suffered enormously. And and you know, there's a lot of of concern about lingering long-term effects of physical activity during the pandemic, not to mention weight gain and other anxiety and five horsemen of the apocalypse kind of problem here. And and I think it, it highlights that so much of the way in which we approach physical activity in our country is is commodified. It's commercialized. You know, we yeah. we sell it. We sell exercise, right? we sell treadmills and exercise clothing and, and that's fine. There's not there's nothing wrong with that. I mean I, mm-hmm. I like my spiffy, fancy schmancy running clothes and I, I have one of those satellite watches that tells me exactly how far and where I am and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's fun, right? But you don't need that, right? I mean, what people just need are safe places to go for a walk or a run or a jog or a, or, or cycle or, or swim or whatever. And we as a society have not done a great job of making sure that those opportunities are available to everyone. And as a result, I think that the pandemic has just heightened that kind of inequality.
0: You mentioned research, and I've seen it too, that in fact, the last year plus may have Um, made the issue of obesity and lack of exercise actually worse population-wide, that people were stuck at home, and it was harder to be in shape. Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, my phone has one of those little, you know, step counters, right? Okay. And uh, so I know that during the pandemic, uh, my average step count, not counting my runs, um, has gone down more than 50%. It's gone down like 60-something percent, I've calculated, right? And you know, if I weren't able to compensate by going outside for a run, or we have a little kind of little machine in our basement where I can exercise a little bit when it's really horrible out there, because I'm lucky, I'd be way, 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 worse shape. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky though. I'm, I live in a neighborhood where there's lots of places to go out and walk and run, and I have a, a job that enables me to do that. And so I'm, I'm really, I've been very fortunate. But, but that's not true of of the vast majority of us.
0: Um, you uh, write about the fact that. You feel like, in terms of exercise, and this may have been true pre pandemic, but boy, with a lot of virtual school, it seems like it's probably been true during the pandemic even more that we've really let our kids down in terms of exercise and kind of physical fitness. Um, and I mean, these are people just at the beginning of their
1: lives. It's tragic and it's unacceptable, right? I mean, we, for various reasons, um, much of it teaching to tests, but you know, it's um, probably more complicated than that, you know. Kids in the United States, but also in other countries, are suffering from an epidemic of of physical inactivity. And and, you know, physical activity is important throughout the lifespan. It's important for kids. It's also important as we get older. But when you're young, you're you're developing your body's capacities. You're developing skills. You're developing habits. You're developing your muscles and your skeleton and your, your respiratory system and all of those systems. And if you don't get enough physical activity, that puts you behind. You know, it makes it much harder for you later on in life. And furthermore, we think of this as a trade-off, right? Time spent in the playground or, you know, doing mm-hmm. physical activity in gym class or whatever is time not spent studying. But, you know, there are plenty of studies which show that that's a false trade-off, that, that you actually get the time back in terms of increased memory and concentration and better mental health and better outcome and less anxiety and and so on. And so that, you know, you know, kids who get more physical activity do better in school uh, after you correct for every other factor. And so we need to wrest control from school boards and whatever, whoever making these decisions and, and insist that our children get enough physical activity that that end of life. And, and the other thing is we should also need to help our, our you know senior citizens too, because as we get older, uh, exercise becomes not less important, but actually more important. Um, hmm. And you know, study after study shows that as you get older, physical activity has more and more effect on maintaining, you know, functional capacity, so that people can can stay healthy and and stay fit and not get sick. And um, and so, you know, there's a there's a very famous study that was done back published in 1986 by by a fellow named Ralph Paffenbarger on on alumni from Harvard University. Actually, he was able to follow all these alumni, you know, throughout their lives. And what he showed was that you know, younger alumni in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who were very physically active had about 20% lower mortality rates than than the ones who were sedentary. By the time they were in their 70s or 80s, they had 50% lower mortality rates. And again, wow. this is after correcting okay. for various other factors, right? And this is, that's not the only study. It was the first of those big studies uh, to show that, you know, you know we, need, we need to be physically active when we're young, and we need to keep it up as we get older. And as we get older, it actually, in some ways, becomes even more important.
0: I think people generally have this view that, like, at a certain point, you've earned it, like, you can kick back and, you know, sit by the lake or whatever. And you have this really interesting hypothesis that actually older adults, grandparents often, were really not made to kick back. Like, they were really made to keep exercising.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked me about this because this is the part of the book actually I'm most proud of, right? Which is that. You know, humans are unusual. We're, we're we're unique. We evolved to live several decades after we stop reproducing. Right, uh, which is
0: a little bit of a puzzle. Like why?
1: Yeah, exactly. Right? And and so the answer to that puzzle, anthropologists have shown, is that because older individuals help their their children and their grandchildren. So you've probably heard of the grandmother hypothesis, right? So grandmothers and also grandfathers are out there foraging and hunting and gathering and getting honey and doing all kinds of stuff that help their children and their grandchildren. And that that energy transfer not only benefits their children and grandchildren, it also benefits the genes of those grandparents. So we evolved to live longer in order to help our children and our grandchildren, but we didn't evolve to, to do it by sitting on the beach in Florida, we evolved to do that by going out every day and, and foraging. In fact, studies show that grandparents sometimes spend more time foraging than parents in some of these societies, right? They're, they're, they're physically active. And remember, physical activity turns on all kinds of repair and maintenance mechanisms that aren't otherwise turned on, right? Well, if you go for a run or a, or a walk or whatever, it doesn't have to be a run, um, you, for example, you stress your body, right? You create these little reactive oxygen species that cause damage and you create you know, micro tears in your muscles and your bones and you, and you, you damage proteins. And there's all kinds of stresses. That's, that's Physical activity is a stress. But because it's a normal stress that we evolved to do, our bodies evolved all kinds of mechanisms to counter those stresses. So when you exercise, you also produce an abundance of antioxidants. You you produce all kinds of molecules that turn down inflammation. You repair your muscles. You repair your bones. You I could go on, right? And and it turns out that we never evolved to turn on these mechanisms as much without exercise, because or physical activity, because we never evolved not to be physically active. And so in the absence, so I I I argue that we evolved. You know that physical activity is not only the reason we evolved to live longer, but also that the response to that physical activity actually helps us live longer because remember Mm -hmm. back in the in the stone age there wasn't you know you couldn't go get you know anti-cholesterol drugs and you know drugs to lower your hypertension and drugs to deal with your the pain from your arthritis and and so on you know instead what we did was we maintained physical activity which prevented us from getting a lot of those chronic diseases and kept us vigorous and healthy and high functioning right up until the end so hunter-gatherers stay strong and fit and and, and very healthy up until basically up until the very end. And then they die very rapidly, unlike mm. in the West, where we tend to have long-term chronic illness that slowly saps our, our, our sort of vitality.
0: A, a final question for you, which I think is ultimately kind of hopeful in terms of what, what somebody can accomplish. Um, you write about a study that was done in the 1960s in Dallas. And uh, what researchers did is they asked a bunch of 20-year-olds to essentially lie in bed for three weeks, uh, which, by the way, makes their bodies seem like 40-year-old bodies after just three weeks in bed. But then they do eight weeks of exercise, and they totally reverse the downside of like this, this slide that they had during those three weeks. They're looking great. They go home. They get older. Um, what happened to those 20-year-olds?
1: They well, so here's the cool thing: these twenty-year-olds initially, when they did all that exercise, right, they were they were in great shape, right. But then when they but when they became sedentary, right, they they got all kinds of heart disease. But the cool thing is that they studied those folks many decades later when they were you know middle-aged men. I think they were all men in that study, and most of them had hypertension and you know incipient heart disease and and all kinds of problems. And they got them back on a treadmill or whatever it was and got them exercising again. And they improved enormously, right? And and it it shows that you know we're not we're not stuck in one gear, right? We can right. turn back on these systems. You know, you can. There are studies which show that people who are physically active have much lower rates of all cause mortality if they if they're physically active all their life compared to people who are sedentary. But people who are sedentary initially and then become physically active also benefit enormously, and they lower their rates of mortality both from heart disease and, and every other, other other sort of cause substantially so it's never too late and and I think the important thing to know is people often want to know what how much should I do and you know how, what's the right amount to do like there, there's no answer to that question there is no right amount but study show, studies show that even small amounts of exercise have huge amounts of benefit you know even an hour a week that's like eight minutes a day can mm-hmm. lower your mortality rate by about 30 to 40 percent I mean that's extraordinary that's just that's eight minutes a day incredible if you and if you do uh, 150 minutes a week, which is what? 21 minutes a day. You can lower your rate by about 50%. And if you do more, it keeps going down and eventually it flattens out. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, maybe if you very extreme amounts, it can go up again. That's a big debate, but very few people are out there in terms of over-exercising. So the important thing to remember is that even a little bit, if you're, if you're struggling to exercise, don't feel bad about yourself. Even a, you're not, there's nothing wrong with you, you're not lazy, you're not abnormal, and even a little bit will yield enormous benefits. and if you want to do more, that's great. Um, and, and, and if you're having struggling, do it, just try to find ways to make it fun you know and, and the best way to do that is to be social. you know do it with other folks, you know get, get, get help from each other and encourage each other and, and, and make it enjoyable because, because let's face it, very few of us enjoy just trudging on a treadmill, you know I mean maybe listening to a great you know show like this or something like that can make it entertaining but for the most part it's a form of you know it's a form of torture right it's not really pleasant
0: Daniel Lieberman is a professor in the department of human evolutionary biology at Harvard he's the author of Exercised why something we never evolved to do is healthy and rewarding Thank you so much for your time this is great
1: Oh thank you I really enjoyed this I mean I enjoy listening to you all the time so you're you're a great interviewer
0: Thank you thanks There is a lot more about exercise on our website, including an exploration of the grandparent hypothesis, the idea that grandparents may be even more geared towards exercise than their younger family members. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show Senior Producer Elizabeth Ross, Producer Mark Sollinger, and Associate Producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. I'm